welcome back to Shannon's Lumber Industry Update. And today, drumroll, it's episode 100. So I feel like it was a fitting topic to talk about the journey of a board. There's so many of us that uh, go and buy our lumber and don't really get to see how that board ended up on that retail rack or on that pallet if you've bought a larger order. And I wanted to take some time to to walk through this. And this is really spawned out of um, a couple of lunch and learn sessions that I've done with architecture firms over the last couple of years that basically explains what are you designing? What are you specifying? And really what's happening upstream? I find a lot of um, both builders, designers, architects, some of them are really good about this and others don't really understand the organic nature of wood. By today's standards, there's a lot of um, very, very clear grades that are required, 100% clear vertical grain. Um, we're also competing, wood, I mean, is competing against a lot of engineered materials that have no defects at all and trying to understand that journey of that board that you have in front of you all the way back to the tree and all the steps that go into it, I think gives all of us who work wood and those of us who actually specify and design with wood a better understanding of the, just call it what it is, the magicalness, the, the magicalness, majesty, the magic nature of this material that we all love. This is a living, growing, highly sustainable object that a lot of hands have touched it before it's, you know, landed on your design board or landed on your workbench. So that's the topic of today. I'm going to try to um, distill what is about a 90-minute lecture um, with lots of Q&A afterwards into a somewhat reasonable length podcast. So that being said, before I go too much further, episode 100, I can't thank you, the loyal listeners, enough for sticking with me this long. This started out as a segment on Wood Talk and spun off into its own show, and I was always worried that would there be enough to talk about? And sure enough, you guys keep sending in questions. You keep giving me more and more topics to focus on. I've had a lot of great interviews and a lot more great interviews to come. You've helped grow this show um, to be as popular as it is and also to give me kind of the street cred to go after bigger and bigger guests. So thank you. Thank you, listeners, for uh, continuing to support the show and continuing to write in. And of course, while we're at that, if you have questions, please, I want to hear them. I definitely want to keep my inbox overflowing. So I've got lots of things to choose from. I like to pick and choose emails and voicemails that come in and try to form themes out of each episode. And having a whole bunch of them in my inbox is just fantastic. So you can send your emails to lumberupdate at gmail.com or just go to lumberupdate.com. There's a contact form that you can fill out there as well. You also can reach me at lumberupdate.com update on Instagram. Um, please keep the questions coming. Absolutely love them. And thank you to my loyal patron supporters. Everybody on patreon.com slash lumber update that have thrown a dollar, $2, $5, even those $8 walnut tier people who, by the way, are getting fancy featured species stickers. Those got mailed out this week. So uh, anybody that joins within the month of May will be getting the featured species cherry sticker coming their way. But there's enough of that little advertisement. Thank you. Thank you for continuing to support the show. And enough of that. Let's let's move on. This is Shannon's Lumber Industry Update. So let's talk some industry news. I have spoken several times about um, the Russian-Ukrainian war and how I wish somebody would kind of step up to the plate and fill the void that Russian birch 
has left open in the market. Now, believe me, Russian birch is still coming in. People are still buying it. Um, there are no embargoes placed against it at this point. There's no outlawing of it. So it is technically still legal. People are conscientiously objecting to buying it. That's one thing, but the industry is still moving on. And that's because there's not really anybody stepping up to fill that void. Well, guess what? Roseburg Forest Products is starting to make some strides. They just invested $700 million in a Southern Oregon manufacturing operation. And there's really going to be two lines coming out of this. One of them is a combi core, an MDF core panel that uh, certainly should be a high quality panel. Uh, combi core and solid MDF panels are definitely super, super stable, super, super flat. A lot of higher end um, panels come out of those types. And then the, uh, the other one is an HDF plant or a high density fiber board. So again, not quite jumping into the birch plywood thing, but the substrate, especially in domestic plywood, the substrate, the cores are just as important. There's a lot of people out there laying up custom veneers. And frankly, the custom veneer, if you've got a super good core can be, you know, half the battle is already actually more than half the battle is already conquered by having that super strong core. So again, we're not quite there to somebody jumping in and saying we're going to compete directly with Russian birch, but just the fact that there's money being reinvested and new manufacturing plants opening, uh, I applaud Roseburg. Um, I've bought quite a bit of their panels. I've used quite a bit of their panels that make uh, a good sheet of plywood. So um, kudos to you, Roseburg. This one's kind of interesting. Um, there's a company up in Maine called the Dovetail Bat Company that has just unveiled this very high-tech scanning system that they're hoping to put in the clubhouses of many Major League Baseball teams. And a player can take their favorite bat, you know, if it's named Wonder Bat or not, stick it in the scanner. It scans and it digitally sends all the dimensions, all the densities, all that stuff off to this um, uh, Dovetail Bat Company up in Shirley, Maine. And they can reproduce their favorite bat exactly. Now, the details of this is a little spotty in the article I'll link to. It was my understanding that baseball bats, geometrically speaking, dimensionally speaking, is standardized. I could be wrong in that. There could be some slight variations. But based on the tech, um, we have a similar system at the yard where I work called the Vision Tally, which will uh, certainly tally the lumber. But there's also some... Um, sound penetration. I don't know if you'd quite call it sonar, but it will detect knots and wanes and things like that based upon, um, well, sonar. So I would imagine this is a similar thing where it's actually giving density numbers and it's allowing them to select the right grade of maple. But again, details aren't quite there. If anybody from the Dovetail Bat Company is listening to this and you want to talk more about it, or maybe they can't, maybe it's all hush, hush, top secret, 11 herbs and spices tech, but I kind of love that. It's, it's like the closest thing to the Star Trek, um, uh, what's that thing called? The, the matter, the the thing that makes stuff, you know, tea, Earl Grey, hot, and it up pops up. Why? I'm totally blanking on the thing. Star Trek fans are angrily typing at their keyboards right now. But it's like, I've got this favorite bat and I'm playing for, you know, the Baltimore Orioles or the Boston Red Sox, you know, or the Texas Rangers. And I stick it in this little thing and it scans it. And up in Maine, somebody, there's a CNC that's cranking out an exact replica 
of my bat and they're going to ship it off to me. And apparently they've been doing this for a while, but you have to take your bat and ship it up to Maine for them to analyze it and scan it and do all that stuff. This is now scanning it remotely. Um, what would be really cool is if they could like send it back and have a 3d printer print the map, that would truly be Star Trek, but, uh, we're not quite there yet. I don't know. I just think this is cool. And I love the fact that it's just this small little company up in Shirley, Maine that's doing this. And there's quite a few major leaguers that are already using these bats and have essentially stored the, the deets, if you will, on their favorite bat in the dovetail bat database. The future is now folks. It's very cool. Um, some interesting feedback here. This comes in from Mike and he says, I regularly hear you talk about Tylos. As far as I'm aware, Tylos is a synthetic compound of cellulose trademarked years ago by the SE Tylos company used as a food additive and some other applications, including medical where I ran across it years ago per my 40 year old college classes. Uh, tylosis is a cellular structure, not a substance that blocks the xylem. And tylosis is also the term describing the process of creating the blockages. Tyloses, plural, T-Y-L-O-S-E-S, not I-S, is the plural of tylosis, S-I-S. There's no substance called tylose in wood. So that, so quote, that wood has a lot of tylose is not technically correct. Rather, there are a lot of tyloses in that wood would be right. Is this one of those things where an industry term is just different from the proper scientific terminology? If that's the case, fine, that happens a lot. If not, I'd like to hear you discuss it. So yes, Mike, um, here's the thing. It comes down to pronunciation. And, and this is, I've said this a lot about like botanical terms and uh, anatomical terms of a tree, like parenchyma. I still don't know if I'm saying that right. And I've heard it pronounced four or five different ways. The Latin botanical names or the Latin-esque botanical names, you hear them pronounced all kinds of different ways. Tylosis, T-Y-L-O-S-I-S, is the singular for that kind of ballooning appendage that, that pushes into the pores, pushes in around the parenchyma, and it blocks off the pore. It is a reaction to fungus. Uh, in the case of Dutch elm disease, the tylosis or plural tyloses that form is the tree's way of compartmentalizing and blocking off and kind of shutting off, quarantining that, um, that fungus, that invasion, whatever it is. Unfortunately, in the case of Dutch elm disease, that uh, blockage of the pore actually uh, blocks all the flow of nutrients and it kills the tree. But in the case of white oak, this is something that just naturally forms as waste material is moved from the xylem and phloem that's pulling the material up and pushing it down as it's being transported via the medullary rays, the waste into the heartwood of the tree, individual tylosis forms, these ballooning out of the cell walls. And that's what I've always referred to as the caulk that's within the cells. And it blocks the transport of water through the pores, which is why white oak is a particularly good exterior species. And red oak is not because red oak does not have those tylosis bubbles in the pores. Now, as far as pronunciation goes, I've always been aware that the singular is tylosis and the plural is tylosis with S-E-S. I have just been pronouncing it wrong, I guess, maybe. I've been calling it tylose, like T-Y-L-O-S-E-S, -E not pronouncing that less S because English is a stupid language. It makes no sense with pronunciation. And probably I should be referring to it as tyloses, 
um, singular being tylosis, plural being tyloses. I honestly don't know. If there are any botanists out there that want to chime in on what they think the proper pronunciation of this should be, go for it. Now, as far as the synthetic compound uh, trademarked by S.E. Tylos, I know nothing about that. Um, tylosis and tyloses, singular and plural, is definitely a natural uh, occurrence, that ballooning out of the cell wall, um, that is a natural occurrence. Maybe S.E. Tylos saw that and decided to make a synthetic compound. Um, and, and maybe they use it to wax the bottom of your sled so you can go sledding at hypersonic speeds like Clark Griswold. I don't know. So anyway, I appreciate that, Mike. It's important. Um, I, I, I love it when people write in with stuff like this because the pronunciation is always going to be a difficult thing. And it's also one of the you know, limitations of this audio medium that can make things particularly difficult. So let's move on to our main topic. And I've got a bunch of questions here, but I'm going to kind of start with the, the distilled version of this presentation. So let's first talk about the cost of lumber. And I like to compare this, I liken this to a gas station. And usually when you find a gas station on the right side of the street, not far up on the left side of the street, if not directly across from it, is another gas station. And oftentimes you will find that those gas stations are in constant price competition with one another. The prices are either equal to one another or one is like, you know, a tenth or a hundredth of a cent difference. And that guy across the street that's two hundredths of a cent more expensive uh, is capitalizing the fact that there's more traffic on his side of the street and he can get that little bit more. So then the guy on the less traffic side of the street decides, well, if he's going to get it, I'll raise my price two hundreds of a cent. And then the guy on the heavily side traffic side of the street raises a little bit more and it's this constant battle back and forth. But the fact of the matter is, if you come along and you see a gas station that is substantially cheaper, and in this day and age, like whole cents cheaper, let alone five to 10 cents cheaper, I have to immediately question, what's the deal here? What's going on? Is this gas hot? Where did it come from? This is the same story in lumber. And I see this all the time, especially on the internet. For people who say, I got this great deal on cherry. I got this great deal on maple. And my immediate question is, there's no such thing as a deal. What did you not get when you buy this, when you bought this super bargain basement maple? What corner was cut? Because the journey from the board that you have in your shop to the tree is a very, very long one. And it is very labor intensive. There's lots of steps along the way, lots of hands touching it, lots of trucking and moving things around. And when you find something that's dramatically cheaper, generally a corner was cut somewhere. Now that is a negative stigma to it. And I remember talking about this with plywood. You get what you pay for. If you want a panel that's got zero voids and is perfectly stable and it's got perfectly uniformly dried core and beautiful top grade, perfectly dried, evenly dried veneer, you're gonna pay a, bar, a premium price for it. These days, at least $90 a sheet. In most instances, it's very easy to pay $150 to $300 a sheet for plywood. So if you find this sheet of Riffsaw and Cherry plywood for $300 and you find another one for $200, what corners were cut in the manufacturing process? How was the glue thinned? How was the veneer maybe not dried as uniformly as that $300 one? Because all that takes time and takes money. So let's, this is the same thing going on with solid wood. There are no deals, folks. 
it's best to understand all the steps in the process. So when you find that lumber that's $3 a board foot cheaper than you're finding anywhere else, you can have an educated conversation with that sawmiller, with that retailer, with that wholesaler and say, okay, why is this lumber so much cheaper? Tell me about the steps and the process. So we've talked about silviculture. We're going to go all the way upstream. We're going to talk about the forest, the actual felling part of the process. We talked about the various different types of silviculture, you know, clear cutting, shelter wood, uh, seed uh, silviculture, all of these different methods for managing a stand of trees, a concession of trees over multiple generations. What are the cutting cycles? Are the cutting cycles 80 years, 100 years? Are you making studs and the cutting cycle is more like five years or 10 years? Years. Is that a lumber stand? And now then you're back up to that 80 to 100 year turn rate on these trees. Understanding the type of lumber you're buying and the market for that lumber will help you understand probably what kind of concession that that came from. Moreover, the regionality, the geographic range of that species will tell you probably where it came from. What is the economy like in that area of the world? What is the infrastructure for logging like in that area of the world? What is the labor pool like for that area of the world? So hard maple um, is a great example in the Northeast. A lot of the hard maple coming out of New England and Maine Logging has been happening for centuries up there. The infrastructure is well and truly in place. So managing concession is one thing. You, you're felling your trees and whatever, whatever silvicultural method you're using, however you're felling those trees, you still have to get that log onto a truck, which has to be on a logging road. When an area like New England, where logging has been going on for centuries, there is a network of logging roads already in place. If you are in a totally different part, very, very wild part of the world, like really like remote Canada, actually, I shouldn't even say that Canada is such a massive labor producer that they have a large already established network of logging roads. But let's go to like Brazil or somewhere else in South America where you've got super, super dense rainforest and you can cut a logging road in and it probably won't be there next season because the growth rate of that tropical forest is so intense. So say you now, you fell that tree, it may say cost the same amount to fell that single tree, but the cost required to get that tree transported to either a, a logging truck or to an actual sawmill could be substantially different. So understanding that geographic range will help a lot, knowing where it came from and knowing what that infrastructure is like and knowing what the labor pool is like. So here again in North America, and let's talk Canada, because I heard a stat the other day that said one out of uh, every 17 people in Canada is directly connected to the lumber industry. They know their lumber in Canada and they have uh, very discriminating taste because they know what they're talking about up there. So with that statistic, there's a lot of talent. There's a lot of, of skilled labor in the lumberjack and Sawyer ranks all the way down to the lumber sellers. Lots of people know what they're talking about. There's not a whole lot of training that needs to go on in order to get that uh, lumber out of the forest, get it sawn for the best yield, for the market trends, all that stuff. So in general, Canada and for the, really let's just say North American forests can bring the wood from tree to market 
a lot cheaper because there's greater infrastructure and there's a lot more people to cut it. But let's use that labor pool as an example of the lumber explosion that happened during COVID. That was driven almost entirely by the labor pool. You were um, unable to go out in the forest and cut down the trees. Well, we shouldn't say that because certainly you can keep your social distance when there's a small logging team out in the forest, but there was no one there at the sawmill to saw those boards. There was no one on the truck to move those logs. There was no one there to move those boards from the sawmill. Um, frankly, there weren't any boards coming out of the sawmill. It suddenly came down to a lack of labor force. And for instance, we went from 11 billion, excuse me, 11, no, 11 billion board feet of poplar near term to less than 6 billion board feet of poplar over the course of one year because it wasn't being replenished. Same things happen with a lot of domestic species. We're seeing the same kind of shortage in red oak and white oak right now because the demand has gone up, but the labor pool has not returned to continue producing those materials. So let's move to another part of the world where maybe they've got plenty of people to work, but they don't have the skilled labor. They don't quite know what they're doing. It takes them longer to fell a tree. They don't quite saw for the appropriate yield because maybe they just started. You know, there's not multiple generations of knowledge in running that sawmill, or perhaps the actual mill, the equipment itself is not nearly as advanced or not as powerful, not as capable to produce, you know, to saw a log as quickly as a more modern mill could do in North America. All of that is going to affect the cost of that. So that's the first thing. I don't want to go heavy down the silvicultural concession management side of things because we have talked about that, but this plays a major, major role, understanding the species and where it comes from. And then you can dig a little bit deeper to find out what the labor pool and what the infrastructure, logging roads, saw number of sawmills, number of, of, of log trucks, um, and the bottlenecks that occur due to seasonality. We talk about the rainy season in South America, and for that matter, in Asia. Essentially, those logging roads shut down in Brazil when the rainy season comes in because you just cannot get a truck out. The roads are completely washed out and the, the weight put on a truck will essentially cause it to sink in the mud, which is why so many companies have begun diversifying where they're buying lumber from out of Brazil because Brazil is a huge place, you know, from north to south of Brazil, you're going to have different seasonality. So the rainy season is happening in the north, but it's not happening in the south. And then as the rainy season continues to move down, it gets drier in the north and wetter in the south. So if you have a supplier, a sawmill in the north, you can't buy from them for a couple of months and you're shifting your buying to somewhere down in the south of Brazil. And then as it starts to get wetter down there, you shift your buying back to the north of Brazil. Same thing happens across Asia and parts of Africa as well. This is all important. Seasonality, regionality, infrastructure, and labor force goes heavily into the cost of your lumber, the availability of the lumber, the time to market of that lumber. So let's talk a little bit. Let's run through at a high level what happens here. So we have your concession. You're managing that concession. And say your concession says... Uh, maybe you're doing uh, seed tree silviculture. So you've got this selective cut and this is going to allow some reseeding for those remaining trees. So maybe one out of every 40 trees you're taking down and maybe you're logging for a specific species, um, but you know that you've got to remove, you know, those three out of 40 trees and you can't just 
pick and choose the three species you want. Say you're after cherry. You can't just go in and say, well, I'm just going to take down cherries. Some concession management may allow for that, but you also have to go out and, and survey and tag the forest and determine, can I pull three cherry trees out of here and still leave seedlings um, seed trees around, feeder trees around of the same species. So your concession may support three trees, but it might not be the three trees of the same species that you're going after. So you tag those. Um, you tag those three trees and then you send in uh, a logging team. The logging team goes out and it cuts down those three trees. It brands the stump, it brands the log for traceability, it tags them, it you know verifies the, the, the feeder trees are in place. Then you have to figure out what to do with the log. Well, the uh, lumberjacks, the guys with the chainsaws, will go out and then delimit. They'll take off all the limbs and things so that they can drag that log. If you leave all the limbs on, you can't drag the log. And if you do, it will rip up the forest floor. So in an effort to have... Um, you know, leave no trace or, or minimal touch uh, forestry, you try to fell it, first of all, in between a bunch of other trees. You're not taking down a bunch of other trees as you fell it. And then you're cutting off all the snags and things that are going to tear up the forest floor as you drag it out of there. Now, the other thing that some modern lumber machinery allows us to do is, is pick up pretty large logs and things like skid steers can have a minimal footprint. They've even got these kind of like robotic looking insectoid things that walk on different on their own feet that can move through the forest and and leave no trace but they can pick up a rather large log segment so say again you're going after cherry you're going after maple and you know you want to at least get eight foot logs um, maple is going to be used for a lot of custom millwork it's also going to be used for a lot of flooring so you may want to try to get longer links out of that cherry you're going to be limited it's difficult to get really long boards um, there anyway, but you'll, after you cut the limbs off, you go out and you will bucket two links dependent upon the market. Automatically, you can see skilled labor and a knowledge of the industry is going to be really important here. If you have a logging team that isn't really as new and, and, and isn't in tune with things, they may bucket too short, or maybe they'll bucket too long and they're going to end up being some damage as you're getting it out of the forest. So, move to other parts of the world where maybe they don't have the skid steers or it's so remote that they can't get a skid steer in there. A lot of places in Asia actually still use elephants to drag logs out. The, the irony is you know, all the animal lovers, me included, are like, oh my God, those poor elephants, but they're actually the best cared for people on the logging crew. In fact, you need to be more concerned about the humans on the logging crew not getting fed as compared to the elephants who are getting fed and are worth their weight in gold but they may be using other animals. And a lot of times in the olden days here in North America, we were using oxen and things like that to pull the material out of there. So we've delimbed it, we've bucked it to length enough that we can begin to, to move it out of the forest without tearing things up. And we're getting it to the nearest logging road and we're stacking it onto a log truck. Now you may have a crane or, or, or some kind of heavy machinery that's loading those onto the logging truck. That log truck gets filled and it then goes to the sawmill. Now that sawmill could be a couple miles down the road, 
or it could be literally states away, depending on, again, upon that infrastructure, the remoteness of where the concessions are. And this is one of the things that started to happen here in North America, where we've had to go further and further afield to get the material. So you got more time and money sunk into transportation. You've got more logging roads that are being established in order to allow for that transportation. I had a conversation with a, a logger up in Maine who was actually selling dimensional lumber. He was selling two by fours and two by sixes. And he was a fourth generation logger who had basically hung up his ax and come out to sell retail lumber because he's like, it was just getting harder and harder. I had to go further and further out into the main woods and you get three trees and you're still getting essentially paid the same amount for those three trees, but you're like tripling, quadrupling your overhead just to get those three trees out of, you know, the TI. <laughs> Sorry, that's my bad Stephen King inspired main accent. So again, infrastructure plays a major, major role in there. You've loaded it onto the truck. You've got it to a sawmill. Now you unload those logs again, Heavy machinery required to unload those logs. You've got to have the space, real estate, in order to house all those logs. Um, and dependent upon the species and the know-how of the yard manager, you, maybe you want to start milling those boards right away. I've talked about species that are particularly prone to staining, like holly, and you don't want that laying around in the log yard, or you're going to lose like a huge amount of value that you get for pure white holly. So if you just fell the holly tree, you want to get it sawn as close to the same day and into the kiln the same day. Well, if you don't know that, and you a couple of foresters brought in some holly logs, that holly is going to start staining within a couple of hours, and you're going to lose all the money you would have made on that log because there's really not a huge market for stained gray holly. Everybody wants the pure white stuff. Maybe I'm not going to say no one's going to buy the stained stuff, but you're going to get it for pennies on the board foot as compared to two, three, four, six dollars a board foot for the pure white holly. And actually even more, if you've got somebody who really knows what they're looking for and fells a veneer quality log, so someone who can look at a log and see here's the quality inside of that and sell that off to a veneer peeler, they're gonna get even more money for that and you'll be able to sell the log for more money. So there again, knowledge of the market, knowledge of the trees, knowledge of how to fell it in the process to get it in the best quality um, to that sawmill. So let's just say we've got one of those boards that we're going to unload from the truck and saw it in the same day. So you use some heavy machinery to lift that log up onto the carriage, or maybe you've got a mobile mill and you know it lays on the ground and it's a matter of rolling it into place or something like that. Now you're going to actually saw the log. Well, how do we saw the log? What species is it? What does the market ask for? What's going to sell? What is the turn rate? There's a lot of things to think about and how we saw that log. Uh, certainly you could just through saw it or plain saw it or flat saw it, pick your favorite term. Um, and that will give you big wide slabs. But are you then missing out? Are you getting the best yield for that log? And depending upon the species, it may be more about the yield. There may not be a huge market for wide maple slabs, but there's going to be a huge market for, you know, six to eight inch wide dimensional boards that are straight line ripped and you're going to get uh, a greater yield and a better per, per board, board foot price off of that. So understanding that market, but more importantly, understanding how to look at a log and how to saw a log for the best yield, the best figure, the best grain, the best return 
on that investment. This is stuff that can take decades to teach because certainly every log is going to look a little bit different. You need to have an understanding of grading. You know, if we're talking about domestic North American species, certainly the North, uh, the National Hardwood Lumber Association, that's the grading system. So you need to understand the grade as you're sawing it and know that, you know, I can cut these nine inch boards, but the grade only goes up to six inches. You know, FAS, the highest grade for NHLA says a six inch wide by eight foot cutting that is 83% clear. That's all it has to be to be FAS. So are you going to make any more money per board foot on that board if you saw it to eight inches wide? Probably not. Now, you're going to make less money on a little two inch wide scantling than you would on an eight inch wide board. But if you have, you know, a 14 inch wide board there sawing, well, 14 inches is a bad example, 13 inch wide, sawing a six inch wide board and then left with a five inch wide board that won't make grade doesn't make sense. But sawing two six and a half to seven inch wide boards is going to get you more yield and a better return on the board foot than it would in trying to keep that super wide 15 inch wide board of maple where I can tell you there's not a huge call for that. You know, red oak, now there would be call for that because that's used in stair treads a lot that are usually 12 to 14 inches wide. 15 inches wide, however, well, maybe not. Maybe you're going to run it through the straight line rip and you're going to mold it into a stair tread and then that 12 inches may be more possible. Uh, we're seeing maple in some stair treads, but mostly that's the domain of oak these days. So again, understanding the application downstream is very important as you're sawing at, at, at the sawmill. And I've had a lot of conversations of late with these micro mills and these kind of grassroots people with wood misers and things, and they are sawing it through sawing. They're sawing it in slabs and letting the woodworker, letting the buyer determine how it's going to be cut later on. But I've actually got an interview, it hasn't aired yet, um, that we should be coming up in future episodes where uh, this particular mill owner talked about how they were through sawing and leaving wide, wide slabs, but the majority of their market was not woodworkers and did not have machinery to do anything with that slab. And they, they ended up asking the mill to end up cutting into narrower boards for whatever project they were looking for, milling it, jointing it, planing it, all that stuff. So in that instance, it made no sense for them to start through sawing these wide slabs if they in turn were then going to do all the work to mill it and sell to the customer. Now granted, they're making on a certain amount of money per linoleum feet to mill that, but they probably could have saved money if they milled that log into dimensional lumber, more importantly, they probably would have gotten a better yield, gotten more usable board footage out of that log if they'd sawn it at the mill first thing, anticipating the market demand and sawing it for that demand. So that all has to happen. There's a lot that goes into running that mill um, and understanding who your customer base is and what they're asking for. I cannot overstate this. The, the amount of knowledge and the, the, the valuable nature of that employee or employees that runs your sawmill can make or break the profitability of an entire mill. So now we have taken that, that log, we felled it, we put it on a truck, we transport it to a sawmill, we've had it in the yard for some amount of time or maybe no time, we've now sawn it into boards. There's still a heck of a lot of waste that comes out of that log, and it will vary from species to species, but some species may only net 30% of usable lumber. The other 70% is trash. 
that gets ground up into mulch. So now there's the labor of clearing away that trash, figuring out what to do with that trash. If you're lucky and you have a market for it and you've got a chipper or something like that, a grinder that you can turn into mulch, maybe you'll sell some of that. But again, you're making fractions of a penny you know, on the board foot for that type of material. Maybe you're able to repurpose it and burn it to power some kilns on the property. Ideally, you want to use as much as you can because that waste will pile up really, really fast. It becomes a haven for bugs. It becomes a major fire hazard. You can't just let this stuff pile up. It's not the great Springfield tire fire that's allowed to burn for decades and decades on end. You need to be able to clear that up. Well, that takes labor. That's a guy or a team of people that are managing that waste and grinding it or doing something with it. Um, and then there's a sales team downstream of that. Then there are trucks that move that mulch to a supplier or load that mulch on a supplier who comes and picks it up. That's a whole other line of business that requires people. Now, fortunately, maybe not quite as skilled, um, but it still is going to require people and requires overhead. So even the trash, the waste is expensive. It's expensive in the fact that you're not making money per board foot on usable lumber, but it's expensive in the fact that you can't just leave it around. You will actually get shut down by an inspector if you don't clean that stuff up. Not to mention it will seriously devalue the quality of the usable lumber because you've got possibly bugs and all kinds of other stuff that can get into it. So now we've got the boards that have been sawn into usable lumber. What are we going to do with it? Well, it needs to be dried. Or maybe, maybe you're selling it green. Maybe you've found a buyer that wants your green lumber. You then have to stack it, put it on a truck, and ship it to that buyer. But these days, more and more of the wholesale yards, the distribution yards, are not buying it green for a couple of reasons. Um, a, more and more sawmills have started operating kilns because they can get a better price for their lumber. If they were shipping it out green, they were making very little per board foot and the margins were super, super razor thin. So the sawmill said, well, tell you what, we'll start drying it. Now we can charge, you know, however much more for that lumber and we save money on shipping because dry lumber is a heck of a lot lighter than green lumber. And the claims rate goes down dramatically. There's a lot of things that can happen to sopping wet lumber during transport. A lot of, a lot of that is movement and mold. You know, if you take green lumber, even if you tarp it really well and you stick it on a truck and you hit the highway speeds, you are blow drying that lumber and it's going to dry uncontrollably. Um, if you tarp it too closely, you trap the water in there and you'll end up getting mold very, very quickly. Plus, it's just super, super heavy. The other thing that came out of COVID is logistics and shipping became a major problem. Every ounce became eight to 10 times more expensive. In some instances, 30 times more expensive during COVID and actually it still hasn't reset after COVID. So you want to save on weight so you can save on the massive, massive logistics and shipping charges just to get that lumber to somebody who's then going to resell it. And if that person is going to resell it, then margin is very, very high. If as a sawmill, you are drying the lumber, you're providing a service to your wholesaler, to your distribution yard, to your retail yard that you can now charge, say, a dollar more a board foot. That retailer now doesn't necessarily have to manage a kiln and it can increase their turn rate. The lumber comes right off the truck and they can start selling it because it's already been dried. So this is why a lot of distribution yards aren't buying green lumber anymore because it's just not an option. And the distribution yards have discovered that it's actually cheaper um, because they don't necessarily have to manage the kilns. That's a very expensive 
piece of machinery to manage and a highly specialized skill set. Remember what I said about labor force? So let's talk about this. Whether the sawmill or the retailer or, or reseller is drying it, you have to choose a type of kiln. Is it a dehumidification kiln? Uh, more than likely, that's what we're talking about. Steam dehumidification kilns in a commercial sector. Maybe it's uh, an RF kiln or a vacuum kiln. Maybe it's a solar kiln, depending on the size of the operation. You have to stack and sticker that lumber in the kiln. You have to constantly monitor that lumber. You have to be taking measurements. You have to be looking out for bugs. You have to be running that kiln. You have to be powering that kiln. Kilns are expensive. Now, maybe you've been able to repurpose your sawdust to, to power the boiler for that kiln. Maybe you haven't. Maybe it's an electric kiln. Dehumidification kilns, electric dehumidification kilns are very expensive to run. You also need to have highly specialized labor force that understands kiln drying cycles, that understands how to run it, that is constantly monitoring it. There's a fair amount of automation that's built in some of the modern kilns, but those come at a major, major price. But then there's also just the simple fact of loading the kiln. I've got an interview that is scheduled. I haven't recorded it yet. We're going to talk a lot about this. The specialized nature of this skill set, basically a person who can load a dry kiln will absolutely destroy you at a game of Tetris because that's what they do all day long is play Tetris. Single species, stacking, stickering, and, and trying to take up every bit of dead air in that kiln in order to maximize the drawing, the drying and drying time and effectiveness of the drying. That is a whole other skill set. Plus it takes time. Certain species will take longer than others. Some species really need to be air dried before they're put in the kiln. Now, air drying, a lot of people think of that adage, you know, one year per every inch of, of lumber. Eh, throw that out the window. I don't think that applies anymore. But you can find some lumber that sits in an air dry yard for three months. Sometimes it's just three weeks. Sometimes it's six months. Depends on the species. It depends on how green it was. Um, what the stacking and stickering is like. What is the local climate like? How much air movement is around those things in the, in the air drying yard? So many factors go into that, but that also slows your turn rate. So that log that you felled last winter and was sawn last winter is still on your yard come July or August. And you have made zero dollars and zero cents on that log, but you have sunk a massive amount of overhead labor into that log. So the cost of that log continues to climb. It's sitting there on your yard doing absolutely nothing, but costing you more and more money, decreasing your, your profit margin. If we'll say the cost of that maple per board foot is fixed and it's never fixed, but it's relatively fixed. Domestic lumber doesn't change that dramatically unless you have a global pandemic and then it changes pretty dramatically. But let's just say $5 a board foot is your cost per board foot of, you know, five quarter maple. Well, you've got this log that you plan on sawing into five quarter maple. You did saw it into five quarter maple. Maybe you got 500 board feet of five quarter maple out of it, but now it's sitting in the air dry yard and it's sitting there for three months. And that cost continues to rise, continues to rise, getting closer and closer and closer to $5 a board foot. Maybe the cost is now somewhere around $350 a board foot. Well, you haven't even put it in the dry kiln yet. Now you put it in the dry kiln and the cost of that goes up to $375. Um, maybe you have a problem with the dry kiln schedule and it takes an extra week longer. Now that cost has gone up to $4 a board foot. Well, your market price is five. Your margin is now $1. You're making $1 per board foot. You had 500 board feet. Do the math, folks. You just made $500. You felled that tree 
it's, it's August. Let's say it's August. You fell that tree in December or January. You have sunk hundreds of man hours, multiple people um, into that log, and you're making $500 off of that one log. And this is the reality of the lumber industry. The margins are razor, razor thin. That does not include what happens downstream of that. So we put it in the kiln. Say we know what we're doing. We've dried it appropriately. But you probably had somebody who's done some initial grading of those boards before it went in the kiln. You want to know what's there. You don't want to just blindly load the kiln because if it's a bunch of crap lumber, well, maybe it's not worth loading in the kiln. Or maybe you have to be cautious because there's, it's full of a lot of defects and that's going to dry differently than perfectly clear grain material. You need to have an understanding of the grade, the widths, the thicknesses you're dealing with before you put it in the kiln. So somebody graded it did an initial pass, which is very labor intensive. Maybe you've got chains that spread the boards out into one single layer, and it's kind of a moving assembly line that will speed things up. But you're still talking about an educated NHLA certified grader that's there looking over, flipping every board, some people on the other end that are stacking those boards, putting stickers in between them. It's a very labor intensive job. There's some automated machinery that will stack and sticker lumber for you, not to mention the cost of the stickers. Like you can't just use red oak stickers anymore. They cause a lot of sticker stain. People know that. So now people are buying perfectly I-beam molded or Z-beam molded Ipe or some other thing like Karooing or some other non-reactive tropical species, which adds to the cost, right? So it's gone to the kiln. You've done that grading. It's come out of the kiln. Guess what? You got to grade it again because the one thing that you can guarantee is that you're going to have kiln defect. You're going to have some splitting on the ends of the boards. That's just the way it is. You might have some sticker stain. You might have some uncontrollable warping or maybe some unanticipated movement or something like that happened in the kiln. Maybe you had some cell collapse dependent upon the species. There's going to be waste that comes out of the kiln. There's no such thing as a perfect run through the kiln. So you now have to grade the whole thing over again. You probably have to do some cutting maybe cut off the kiln defect. Now, back to when I talked about knowing the market when it comes to sawing the log into boards, now your grader needs to know the grades because the NHLA grade is what we call a cutting grade. It's not an appearance grade. It's not like European grades like FEQ where they're graded just on how pretty it looks. This is a cutting grade. Defects affect how much clear material is, but ultimately the grade, like I said before, FAS is a minimum six inch wide by eight foot long cutting that is 83%, 83.3% clear. If you can't get a six by eight board out of it, then it goes to number one common and your price drops dramatically, massively, like 30, if not 40%, it's going to drop. So this grader is pulling stuff out of the kiln and he sees some kiln defect and he's like, well, I could cut six inches off in order to get rid of that kiln defect um, or I could cut eight inches off. And if I cut eight inches off, I'm not going to be able to get an FAS board out of this that's a problem. But if I only cut six inches off, is that kiln defect truly going to be removed or is that crack going to open again? They've got to know this. They've got to understand the grade. Plus they need to understand their customers, their market. Who's buying what? Like FAS, yeah, that's the top grade, but the molding and millwork guys do not want eight foot boards. They want 12 foot boards. So this is beyond FAS. So maybe you're grading according to FAS, but you've got to grade it according to your own in-house superior grade or 
all heart grade or 80-20, 80% heartwood, 20% sapwood grade. If you're grading maple, you're grading for the whitewood, the sapwood, not the brown heartwood. And you have to factor all that stuff in and know who's buying it, what are they buying it for, what is the application, and therefore what are what are acceptable sizes. So if you're selling um, to a molding and millwork company, but they mostly make uh, narrow, say, baseboard moldings, they specialize in four-inch wide baseboard molding. Well, technically, yes, a four-inch board won't meet FAS grade, but if it's 15 feet long and it's 100% clear, that molding company is going to be quite happy with you. In fact, they're going to be even happier with you because they've got a blank that's closer to what they need to run through their molder to create that baseboard. So grade is one thing, but knowing your customer and grading for the customer is the better bet. That's where you're going to make a better return and a higher margin off of that. So grading out of the kiln is getting rid of defect, but also intimately understanding the market and the customers that you sell to. And this is why we find that a lot of sawmills are specialty mills. They specialize in a species and they sell primarily to the flooring companies or they sell primarily to the millwork companies, or they have a saw that's just set up for molding and millwork. And then they have another saw over here that's just set up for flooring. Um, and they're, they're able to manage that and get the best yield, but also the best margin for the particular application. This is all stuff that requires dedicated labor force. It requires time uh, to run through the saws and all of that. So now it's been through the kiln. It's been graded again. It's been roofed in defect. Now it has to be stacked and ready for sale. Well, do you have a customer right now? Maybe that customer has already bought a truckload worth of that maple. Well, what is the specification that the customer has asked for? Gone are the days of, I want a truckload of maple. I shouldn't say gone. It still happens from time to time, but most people are not ordering truckload quantities anymore. Most resellers are not managing large inventories. They're working off of what's known as a just-in-time business model. Home Depot is just-in-time. You know, they have a lot of studs and things like that, but the, the amount of hardwoods they have in store is very minimal. You can get anything through Home Depot or Lowe's, you just have to special order it. 84 Lumber is another entity like this. A lot of the hardwood dealers that also sell things like windows and doors, like the home centers, they can get you anything by calling a wholesaler, by calling a distribution yard and having it shipped to them. They're not going to buy a truckload of material and have it sitting on the shelves losing value when they can call in one in order. When somebody comes in and says, I need 500 linear feet or 500 square feet of decking, they're going to call the distributor and have, that distributor can put it on a truck and have it to them you know, within a week. It ends up being a cheaper business model for the reseller because they're not having to buy in large quantities and maintain large inventories. Now, they may be able to save money per board foot by buying in large quantities, but again, that turn rate could be really slow. It could sit on the shelf for weeks on end. It could get picked over and, and you end up with a bunch of boards that nobody wants and you end up writing those off. So it's better to buy on a per order getting it just in time to fulfill the customer order. That's what's happening more often than not now. So when you have that graded lumber out of the kiln and now you're ready to sell it, that customer has a spec. They have an application in mind. And say they're buying rough sawn lumber, but they want that rough sawn lumber to be six to eight inches wide, heavy on the average of eight inches. So six, eight, eight up was how we would refer to that. Six to eight inches wide with the majority of it being eight inches or eight up. Now you're pulling that lumber that's been graded and has had the defects sawn off and you're bundling it into packs. So 
you're, you're essentially packing and almost grading it again for that specific customer. Now, maybe you don't have a customer. Maybe you're just managing near inventory. Well, here again, who are your customers? What do your customers buy? What type of specialty sawmill are you? You want to assemble packs that are as uniform as possible. First of all, you don't want to have a bunch of four-quarter, eight-quarter, and five-quarter boards all in one pack. That's a pain in the butt to manage. You're going to have all four-quarter boards in one pack. You're going to have all eight-quarter in another pack and one pack of nothing but five-quarter. Maybe you sell to a lot of door companies, and maybe you have to carry seven and nine quarter because that's the stuff they like. That's a whole other thing. Again, know your customer. So you're bundling it based upon thickness. You're also trying to stack similar widths and similar lengths together. So you've got a rather uniform pack. And and really, what's the break point? Like how small of a pack is too small? How big of a pack is too big? That may depend upon how you store it what kind of forklifts you have. All of that stuff plays heavily into these decisions, but ultimately what the customer buys it for. That's going to determine what type of pack you assemble. Now, you're also going to end up with those weird boards. Maybe you have a random width, random length, sometimes even random species pack that you put together. All of that stuff has to be assembled after the post-grading coming out of the kiln. And again, a lot of labor, a lot of knowledge about the customer, and a lot of space, a lot of real estate just required to create all these packs. Now you have to store it. You have to put it in a shed. Most lumber sheds are covered roofs with open sides because you want to keep air flowing through them. You need to be able to get to it. You need a forklift to move that stuff around. You have to find a way to inventory it and know what you have out there and a way to quickly access it and possibly grade it. Or maybe that order comes in for the customer. Now you need to pull it out of near inventory and do that whole grade for the customer, spec for the customer all over again. Now you have to grade it again. Then you have to load it on a truck or the customer comes and picks it up, but you still have to load it on the customer truck. In most instances, customers are expecting delivery. So you have to either load it on your own truck, which means you're maintaining a fleet of your own trucks. You're paying drivers, you're paying fuel, you're paying all the the highway transportation safety inspection, dues, fees, all the insurance that comes with that. Then you're delivering it. Well, who are you delivering it to? Do they have a forklift? Can you get a tractor trailer in there? All of those things cost money. If they don't have a forklift, well, maybe you have to have a Moffat or one of those piggyback forklifts on the back of your truck. Your driver needs to be able to operate it. So not only are they a commercial driver's license able to operate an 18-wheeler, but they need to be able to load and unload. Most common carriers and LTL shipment will not do that. They drop the trailer and roll. Like if you're going to deliver customer service to your customers and actually do unloading for them, um, you have to make sure that your drivers are not just your average truck driver. This is a highly skilled truck driver who's also a loader and unloader. Oh, and by the way, load balancing, meeting highway uh, highway regulations, the amount of time that goes into loading a truck is amazing. And I actually, they loaded a lot of trucks outside my office window and it is amazing how long it takes. We have some guys, that's what they do. Like that's their entire job is loading trucks. Just like the guy who can play Tetris and load a kiln, same type of skill set in loading a truck, but also understanding how to balance that load. What are the regulations? Um, what, What can you get away with? What kind of damage might happen to the lumber? How do you secure that lumber as it goes? Where is it going? Like how far, how long is it going to be on the highway? Like my truck that runs up to Pennsylvania from Maryland, it's not that big of a deal, but my truck that runs from Maryland to San Diego, 
totally different deal. A lot more way stations, a lot more highway time, all that um, blow dry effect I talked about when putting lumber onto a truck and running it on the highway for, for you know thousands of miles. This all goes into that. That is all specialized labor. It's time required to do that. And the lumber still hasn't hit the for sale rack. So it gets to your customer. It's unloaded. It is then the retailer or the reseller is then taking inventory of it, possibly doing some grading, loading it onto the racks. Then who's going to buy it? Say it's a retailer. How long, say you bought a thousand board feet of maple, how long before you sell every stick of that thousand board feet of maple? Moreover, will you sell every stick of that thousand board feet of maple? Because maybe you ordered FAS maple, but there is a percentage allowable of common or below grade or above grade in that pack. So you're a retailer, you've bought a thousand board feet of, of maple and the shrinkage or the amount allowable below grade will, will vary. And some of that will be laid out in the actual sales order. I will only allow 10% shrinkage on this. There are some regulations that NHLA puts out, but people are kind of, that's more of a nod to those regulations. More and more people are stipulating it in like the fine print of the sales order. I need 100% all heart, you know, and you pay for that. When you, when you specify that level of quality, you will absolutely pay for that. You can save money by buying it um, according to NHLA regulations, which will allow for 10% shrinkage below grade. You're going to pay a lower price for that. But remember what I said at the outset of this? If you find a deal, a corner was cut. So if you specified 100% all heart or all white maple or all red cherry, that sawmill is going to charge you a lot more for that. And you have to be prepared for that. So now we've got it. We've unwrapped it. We've put it on the retail rack. And now it sits there for six months, selling one board at a time. And you've outlaid the money to buy that thousand board feet, but you're making it back $10 at a time over the course of six months. Now you can imagine if you've got a full inventory and you're selling, you know, you've got a quota maybe you're trying to hit every day, you can continually resupply that resupply that inventory, knowing that as long as I'm making $300 a day, whatever the number is, your business is doing well. But if you don't anticipate your market or you end up and you overbuy, you buy 2,000 board feet of maple and you only sell 500 feet and the other 1,500 feet just languishes on your racks for the next year, two years, the cost of the market cost of maple rises and falls over that time. You bought it at $3 a board foot and at the time, $6 a board foot was the market cost for maple. Well, a year and a half later, maybe that cost has dropped to $4 a board foot and you can't sell it at $6 a board foot. You have to now sell it at four, even though your cost was three or three twenty-five, Or you bought FAS maple at three fifty dollars a board foot and you've sold all the really, really nice kind of six to eight inch wide, perfectly clear boards. What's left are the boards that are like five and three quarters or right at six inches rough sawn that it's going to dimension to less than six inches. Maybe it's just on the border of FAS and common and you can't quite move it. So what do you do? You reduce the price or you just go ahead and call it common. And now it's selling for 375 a board foot and you paid 350 a board foot. Over time, the longer you hold on to that lumber, the longer your turn rate, basically the, the tighter and tighter and tighter your margin gets until you might actually start losing money on it. So that's the journey. It is long. It is arduous. There are many, many hands. I've been really focusing on domestic lumber here in North America 
The same thing would apply for domestic species in Europe. But you can imagine now exotics and the import nature. Your logs are sawn into boards, almost 100%. They're sawn into boards in country. Um, many of the tropical forests, they have wood misers out in the bush because they can't move logs because they don't have the logging road infrastructure. So they've got people who are felling a log, felling a tree right next to the sawmill and they're sawing it into boards. Now that may sound efficient, but who's operating that sawmill? Like, who knows? You know, how long have they been operating a sawmill? Moreover, is it the best operating conditions? Do they have the ability to be picky about how they're sawing it? But once it's sawn into boards, now instead of one log that you have to move on a truck, now you may have 300 boards that has to be moved by hand through the forest to get to a logging truck. Um, all of that is, is going to affect that cost that you may not run into in North America or Europe where you have that infrastructure in place. Some instances, the logs are being trucked to a sawmill like we see in North America, but in most instances, the sawmills are not anywhere near a distribution center or a port. So maybe they're sawn into boards in country, maybe they're moved to an intake yard where there's a little bit of air drying that's gone on, but that's still out in the forest. Eventually, those boards are put under a truck and then they're trucked to a port city for some of the initial drying or maybe additional milling. And this is where regulation comes into place. A lot of uh, additional transformation is required in country and that in order to be compliance with the U.S. Lacey Act, that amount of transportation needs to happen. So that has to happen near a larger city where you have molders and things like that that can, can mill that board. If you're buying decking, it's generally an S4S, E4E product that's coming out of Brazil or coming out of Africa. That has to be done in a larger port city. Then it's got to go to the port. Then it sits in customs. Depending on the port and the infrastructure in the port, it could sit in port for three to six months or they're just waiting to fill the ship. And that was the problem we had during COVID. And even now there were not enough ships. So you would have containers and containers and truckloads just piling up in the port. And there's one crane in the entire port of Ghana, one crane to load seven ships. And you know, that crane only operates three hours a day or that crane breaks down. This happened and lumber sat in the port for eight, months. Lumber did not move out of Africa for 18 months. So all this Apili, all the African mahogany, the Udali just sat there. Well, guess what? That was already purchased. That was purchased by an importer of record. Just to get it to the port, you've already made that purchase because the sawmill that's out in the bush of Cameroon or in the bush of Brazil is, is you know, hand to mouth at this point. They can't afford to saw a bunch of stuff on, on spec you are placing the order and, and the good importers are dealing with the sawmills for lead, for uh, sustainability, environmental purposes, for regulation, for traceability, all of that stuff. It's important to know who you're buying from. And in many instances, all these things I talk about, about knowing your customer, you do the opposite in a lot of import buying where you're dictating to the mill. Here's what I need. I need minimum eight inches wide and 15 foot long. You're telling that to the mill and the mill is telling you, I need X amount of months in order to develop that, in order to saw enough trees to get you the 25,000 board feet of eight inch wide minimum that you're looking for. In order to do that, you are essentially paying for it in advance. So you paid for it and they sawed it and they're like, hey, I'm washing my hands. That's what that sound is. We've shipped it off. It's not a problem anymore. Well, the port is holding it for 18 months and that money that you paid is just hanging out there. What's happening to the market price of that, of that African mahogany, of that sapili? You don't know. And you haven't even countered ocean freight yet. 
And the ocean freight is a whole other thing. And then it gets to a port here in North America. How long does it sit in the port in North America? And believe me, if it sits too long, you start paying massive demerge fees. Demerge is basically the cost to hold material in the port. Well, say that's been uh, called for inspection. Well, it's always going to be inspected as it's coming in. Well, say it takes three days for that inspector to get to it. You're paying demerge fees. It doesn't matter that they're not going to release it yet. You're still paying to rent space in that particular port. Say there's a longshoreman strike. <laughs> Guess what? Your lumber's sitting there. You're paying demerge fees on it. Say customs official gets tied up somewhere else and can't get to it for three and four weeks sitting there, you've already paid for it. And your margin is going down and down and down and down because you paid for it 18 months ago and you've been waiting for it ever since. Meanwhile, your customers are going, I need material, I need material, I need material, and you can't get it. So what are you doing? You're going and buying material that's already in country from a competitor, like you know, here in the States. And of course, they're gonna charge you an arm and a leg because A, you're their competitor. B, they've already paid a bunch of money just to get the lumber on their yard. So your margin shrinks even further. Moreover, it's a global economy and it's a global climate. So North American grades or North American drying standards are higher, excuse me, European drying standards are higher at around 12 to 15% moisture content versus the drier North American climate of 6 to 8%. So dependent upon the sawmill, they're probably drying for European standards because if they dry it to North American standards, they can't sell it to Europe. If they dry it to European standards, they can sell it to Europe and to North America uh, because you can always make it drier. Um, so they're selling it. It's coming in a country. The local yard here in North America has to air dry it and has to redry it in a kiln to get it down to six to eight percent. That's more that's being done. All on the way, everything we talked about with the grading that happens before and after the kiln, that's still being done. Sometimes an additional time due to that air dry and, and kiln drying time that's happened. We haven't even talked about millwork. If you're a lumber yard that actually planes or makes moldings or things like that, that's all additional transformation that is heavy machinery based, it's heavily skill based, that requires totally different packaging. Um, care and damage is a much, much bigger deal. All of that is a massive, massive, um, I don't want to say blow. Yeah, it's a blow to your profit margin. So you can imagine the next time you go to a home center and you're looking at that piece of crown molding, everything that's happened to that humble little piece of poplar before it landed on that rack costs money and costs time. And more than likely that piece of poplar crown molding that you're holding in your hand was a tree three years ago. Maybe, maybe at earliest three years ago. And all of that time that's gone by has just been investing money, investing money, investing money, and nobody really getting a payoff until you buy that stick of molding three years later. So here again, folks, there are no deals in lumber. There is a massive amount of overhead before it hits that sale rack. So if you find a deal, there's a reason. And that expression caveat emptor or buyer beware is something to be very aware of. It's a long and winding and twisted and scary and politically charged and environmentally charged road when you pick up that board, everything that's happened upstream. So now hopefully you've got a better idea of that journey of the board and 
I want to throw this out to you. I've got a bunch of questions that I've collated through um, uh, Patreon supporters, and I'm going to address those in a future show because we're already over an hour on this particular show. So I want to throw it out to you, the listeners. Based on what we've just talked about, and the journey from tree to board, what other questions do you have? How else can I fill in the blanks of that journey? Even ancillary questions. Send them in. I'm going to pull them together with the questions that have already come in from my Patreon supporters. And we're going to do a follow-up to this, a Q&A based on the journey of a board. So with that, I will say, go buy some lumber, hold it close, hug it, and think how long that road has been before you could hug that board.